Today's podcast is brought to you by GigaOM Research, the leading source of research and analysis on emerging technologies including cloud, mobile, social enterprise, connected consumer, and clean tech. Sign up for a free seven-day trial at pro.gigaohm.com and save 20% off the regular rate of $2.99 a year when you use the discount code PODCAST1. That's PODCAST with the number one. Welcome to the GigaOM Podcast, where you get to listen in on interesting conversations about technology on your way into work. My name is Chris Albrecht, and with me as always is Tom the Krasman Krasit. I'm thinking we should change up and do this show in the style of uh, morning drive time radio. What do you think, Tom? Uh, I forgot my beeps and uh, buzzers and that kind of thing. Whoa! Uh, I I don't hear anything like that out in in the Silicon Valley, so I, I think this is an opportunity for us. There may be a reason for that. Chris and Kras in the morning! Uh... We'll, we'll work on it. All right. Uh, well, you know, work, uh, funny you should bring up work. Right now, you and I are calling into Skype. Uh, ironically, we're both in the office, but we're joined today by two of our colleagues who do telecommute on a regular basis. That's Matthew Ingram out in the Great White North up in Canada in Toronto. Hi, Matthew. How you doing? Good. How are you, Chris? Good, thanks. And joining us from Northern California is Nicole Solis, also by phone. Nicole, how are you this morning? Pretty good. So I think it's appropriate that we're all actually, none of us are in the same room at the same time. Uh, unless you live under a rock, uh, you probably have heard the, the, this is really kind of blown up into a really big story about Yahoo's decision to ban kind of working from home. By now, everybody kind of knows the news of it. You know, Yahoo said, hey, no more working from home. You got to come into the office. And they, they shrouded it under this message of collaboration and communication. Um, a lot of ink has been spilled. A lot of words have been said. But let's let's focus first, Matthew, on was this a good move for Yahoo? What do you think? My, my feeling is that it isn't. I know I've talked to lots of people that I respect, um, you know, technology insiders and so on, who who think it is. They think, you know, it's the kick in the ass that Yahoo needs, and they think that Marissa Meyer needed to do something. Um, strong and and like make some substantial moves to get everybody sort of on the same team and all pulling in the same direction and all that. But I I, I think it sends the wrong message. If you're Yahoo and you are trying to show that you're innovative or actually encourage innovation, you're trying to encourage people to maybe come and work for you who are going to be innovative. I think if you say, oh, we'd like you to come and work for us and be innovative, but you can't work where you are, you have to move to somewhere where we have an office and actually come into the office every day. It, like that just sends the wrong message to me. I think you're you're saying you're trying to suck and blow at the same time. You're trying to say we're we're changing everything around, we're getting really innovative, but then you're not allowing people the flexibility that that lets them work for you unless they happen to be somewhere you have an office. Yeah, I've I, not heard that metaphor used in a technology podcast before. <laughs> <laughs> This yeah. is the first time for everything. <laughs> it both sucks and blows. Well done. <laughs> you know, Nicole, you uh, um, were a manager of the editorial staff here at GigaOM for a long time. What is? And but we usually have a distributed workforce. I mean, where do you kind of feel, just from a managerial standpoint? Do you think that there's some validity in the approach that Yahoo is taking here? Well, you know, it's really interesting because um, I think this is a, it's a really interesting question. It's something that I've thought about a lot. You know, like before I came to GigaOM. Um, where we do, like you say, we do have a huge, a completely distributed workforce. Well, not completely, but a pretty distributed workforce. Um, but before I came to GigaOM, I worked at an online management site, you know, kind of like a, um, called Bnet. 
and we did a lot on, you know, future of work and remote working and that kind of thing. So this is a topic that I, that I think about a lot, you know, both personally and kind of on a professional level. And what it sort of reveals to me is that, well, it, po- it points out the fact that Yahoo has a huge middle manager problem. And, you know, that's something that you hear from people, you know, I mean, working in the Bay Area and Silicon Valley, if you interview people who worked at Yahoo, that's, it's a, it's a well-defined problem that there's, there's all these layers of hierarchy. Um, and what this decision seems to most clearly telegraph to me is that Yahoo doesn't know who its good employees are. It doesn't know who its good managers are and that the only way that they have figured out to sort of suss out this problem is to bring everybody in house and so that they can actually see, you know, because if a manager is bad, like if an employee is bad and a lot of the discussion has focused around like if an employee is bad and like that this could be a move to kind of get rid of all the dead wood in the company. Um, but, and, and, and that's true. I think that if an employee is bad, you know, you can, you can see who's hanging out the water cooler too much or who's, you know, taking a smoke break every hour or whatever. Um, but if a manager is bad, they can also kind of hide the good work of their employees. And, you know, if they're in the office, they can take credit for it. If they're in the office more, more frequently, they can take credit for it. So, um, I don't know. It brings up a lot of interesting issues. I think overall, it's probably what Yahoo needs to do, but it's what Yahoo needs to do for their current workforce, and it's not going to help them build their future workforce. Yeah, internet companies shouldn't rely on the internet to get stuff done. That doesn't really seem to make any sense. (laughs) That's a burn. (laughs) You know, I see all sides of this whole thing. Like, I, you know, having both telecommuted and worked in offices, um, and now sort of doing a mixture of both, you know, there are different kinds of things that work better in each situation. Like there are things I do better at home. There are things I do better in the office and having the flexibility to know when I need to get things done in certain places is I think really helpful for me. Um, you know, and maybe that's not necessarily the case. Like, you know, I mean, comparing our business to Yahoo's business is maybe not the, maybe not the best way to think about it. Um, because like we sort of, as the nature of a media company, you have to be a bit distributed. You have to be a bit flexible because, you know, of just the nature of, of what we do. But I mean, I do, I do like Nicole's point about the employee measurement or other lack thereof, you know, where they just really don't have a good handle on like who are the people at Yahoo that we need to keep and who are the people at Yahoo that we need to help and who are the people that we need to get rid of. Um, I don't I talked really... to a couple... Go ahead, I talked Matthew. to a couple of Yahoo um, employees or insiders and former employees, and they said um, that one of the things they thought Marissa Meyer was trying to do was get rid of sort of middle managers who work at home and do nothing. So it sounds like over the years, as Yahoo's gotten more and more dysfunctional, you know, lots of kind of lower level management types have spent a lot of time at home working on other jobs or doing different things or just basically not doing anything. And so that seems to be what they're directing or part of what they're trying to get rid of. But I, I still think the message there, that may be the internal you know, reason for doing it, but I still think the message that they're sending, 
particularly to potential employees, is just totally wrong. I think I one thing that you have to note about this, though, is that people who work at Yahoo seem to like it. You know, a lot of the, a lot of the, I don't want to call it outrage exactly, but a lot of the hand-wringing about this decision has come from outside of Yahoo and not necessarily inside of Yahoo. So, I it's mean, funny, I, though. I think part of it is just people like the fact that Marissa Meyer is doing something. You know, she's, 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 and she's making a sort of strong statement, right she's or wrong. Leading. She's right. <laughs> yeah. She's Something Yahoo hasn't had in a long time. Exactly. We're going to do this. We'll like it or not. And so I, I got a lot of responses from people saying, you know, maybe it's right, maybe it's wrong, but it's nice to see Marissa, you know, doing something. It's interesting, too, that I think a lot of the, like, kind of going back to the source of the outrage that you brought up, Tom, like a lot of the, a lot of the outrage seems to come from people who are, who are kind of in roles like ours, you know, like who are salaried employees, you know, or presumably salaried employees. And, you know, like there's a different kind of, there's a different kind of contract with a salaried employee. But in the reports that have come out about this, it sounds like it's going to affect, you know, it's going to affect about 500 people. Um, A lot of them are customer service employees. Um, At least that's, you know, those are the initial reports. And it almost... It's hard to tell if those reports are accurate, but if those reports are accurate, then is this is this move really targeting the people who who have the the biggest problems? Mm-hmm. You know, like is it is it targeting that middle management layer that's just that's just too bloated and and ineffective and doesn't have can't be trusted to manage their remote workers to really figure out who are the good ones and who are the ones who are slacking off and starting companies on the side. I think a lot of remote workers, too, you know, part of the reason that this has become such a thing is that a lot of remote workers feel marginalized. You know, they Mm -hmm. feel like they're not part of the office, even though they're working really hard, even though they're good employees, even though what they contribute to the company is top notch. I think a lot of people who don't work in an office feel like they are not necessarily on the radar of the company in the way that people who show up every day are. So I think it, you know, in Yahoo making such a public or maybe they didn't intend it to be public, but, you know, in this becoming such a public thing for Yahoo, I think it, you know, kind of gets to the fears of a lot of remote workers that, you know, companies are going to start thinking that, you know, if you're remote, that you're not really pulling your weight. And so I think that that's playing into a lot of why this has turned into a much bigger story than I think any of us really anticipated. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it goes back to all the same debates that happened when, when sort of telecommuting first became a thing you know the the lots of traditional managers at large companies said well effectively we're not going to let our staff do that because then they'll just goof off all day and watch Oprah or whatever and we won't be able to tell whether they're working or not and so it feels in a way as though Yahoo which is supposed to be you know an innovative technology based company is kind <laughs> of you know this this viewpoint is a throwback to their well, we need to have them in the office so we can see whether they're goofing off or not. I think- but then also you have to consider that she's coming from Google, which does everything it can to keep people on campus. Mm-hmm. And a big criticism of her, well, one criticism of her so far has been that she's just trying to recreate Google's culture. I mean, yeah. the difference is people want to work for Google because it's Google. You know, it's an industry-leading company. And so they're like they're willing to trade the work-life balance because they get paid pretty well. You know, they've they'll get stock, even though it's not worth as much as it was in the pre-IPO days, you know, they'll work on products that everybody hears about, whereas, you know, potentially Yahoo employees are 
losing the flexibility, getting a free phone, sure, you know, getting mm-hmm. food, um, <clears throat> but they're working for Yahoo <laughs> at the end of the day. And there has <laughs> always been a kind of, you know, a downside or a dark side to the Google approach, which is we'll give you all this free food and we'll have, you know, the ballroom you can play in or the slide you can go down or whatever. But really, that's all just a way to get you to stay here 18 hours a day and not go home and see your family. I think, I think to your earlier point, Matthew, Farhad uh, Manju wrote actually, I think, a really good uh, piece on this. And he was just like, it, it neglects, it's such a hammer approach to this, just like bashing mm-hmm. the problem down, which I honestly think, actually, I, I, don't, I don't think Meyer was wrong in doing it. But it, you know, as we, uh, a lot of us, uh, you know, we write, and writing doesn't necessarily come as much as we need it to on a schedule. Um, mm-hmm. And so there are different types of workers. And, you know, just saying that as a blanket statement, telecommuting is bad kind of neglects the fact that, you know, creativity doesn't happen when you force it to happen. Uh, it's well, and of, we also, you know, the other aspect was, was the aspect of how this treats um, particularly women, single mothers, people who have need flexible working arrangements, or single fathers for that matter, who need flexible working arrangements and, and can't go into the office all day because they, they literally can't afford it or they can't do it. You know, this seemed, I think a, a lot of the negative reaction came because the assumption was that Marissa Meyer, having just had a baby, might actually be more sympathetic to that viewpoint rather than, hey, all you, you know, new moms need to get into the office. Yeah, I will say I I appreciate the flexibility of being able to work from home, and it's not just, um, you know, it's it's not just having daycare. It's like the ability to pick the child up when they're sick, mm-hmm. and you know the the example that they used in the memo was you know for the cable guy, you know, well, you know, I I don't <laughs> I don't live an extravagant lifestyle. I don't think um, that's not true at all. That's Chris. true. That's I totally, not what I it's, it's totally posh. And look, when yeah, one of my three when, when one of my three nannies can't drop my kid off, then oh. it throws my whole life into arrears. I don't know if you've seen yeah. the movie about me, The Queen of Versailles, but um, <laughs> the sequel the, was really good. <laughs> the no, it's just you know that flexibility to drop my son exactly. off and pick him up is not like indicative of laziness. It's just you know that way he doesn't have to spend a whole lot of time in daycare and. I can pick him up if he gets sick and it's not a huge thing. You know, it, those kinds of things, I think it's, you know, maybe Yahoo needed the hammer right now and maybe they'll soften it in the weeks and months to come. But uh, it just seems like sort of a, I don't know, a bludgeon approach. Yeah, that was one, that that was the line in the memo that really stuck out the most. You know, like, um, it was, the tone of that was, it was just so amazingly tone deaf. You know, coming from their head of HR, you know, like, human resources like that's that's kind of <laughs> appalling um and it it reminded me too of the that netflix memo that came out or the netflix presentation that kind of came back in the news that Sheryl sandberg was talking about as like the most important document in silicon valley and <clears throat> they took netflix took a similar approach where they were basically like okay here's what we give to you we will let you work with the smartest people in the valley on awesome projects you know you'll have a lot of freedom but, um, and I think this was in particular in relation to their expense policy, like, don't, like, don't screw us over, you know, <laughs> don't, if you're subscribing to Hulu, uh, you know, and you're saying that it's for research, but it's really because you just want to watch 30 Rock every week, you know, um, don't, like, don't put that on your expense report. And I think that that, the tone of the Netflix 
document was so much more, it was so much more fair. You know, it was like, hey, we're giving you this, you know, whereas the, um, we're giving you this and here's what our expectations are. Whereas that comment was just, you know, especially when Marissa Mayer has a, um, has a nursery in her office, mm-hmm. allegedly, you know, like I'm sure if she had to wait for the pay- the cable guy, you know, she'd send her PA to do it. You know, there's, it was just remarkably tone deaf. Yeah, I agree. The The whole tone of it, like I, like I mentioned before, was, was a big, gigantic bureaucratic company that thinks you're going to goof off if you stay at home for longer than an hour to wait for the cable guy. Like it, it, to me, it, it's, it telegraphed just how, kind of deep rooted Yahoo's culture problems must be if they think that this is the only way or one of the only ways that they can deal with this problem. Well, you know, telecommuting isn't going to go away just because Yahoo says it is. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see if this impacts other companies or, you know, if anybody else picks this up. It's also turned into a much bigger story than I think Yahoo anticipated it to be. So who knows what will come out in the next couple of weeks. But Matthew and Nicole, thanks so much for being on the show today. Really appreciate it. Great. Thanks for having me, Chris. Well, it used to be when the dog bites or when the bee stings. And these were a few of your favorite things. I know you're a big Sound of Music fan. You got me, man. That's that's just right up my alley. Yeah. <laughs> you're 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 always like you can take the von Trapp out of the boy or something, the boy out of Austria. Coltrane did a great version of that. I mean, come on. <laughs> anyway, uh, speaking of things, things one, two, things three. Uh, we the Internet of Things is going to be a huge thing that um, you experienced this year. And here with us to talk about it today is our very own Stacy Higginbotham, who is the what are you the the queen of things. I was going to say the reporter of things, the queen of things. You are the queen of the internet things. Uh, so much so that you launched, we launched a podcast built around the internet of things. But we're talking to you today because we held a meetup in San Francisco all around the internet of things. 250 people showed up. It was chaos. People were thinking all over the place. Like, I, don't, I wouldn't describe it as chaos. I would describe it as fun and really exciting. And so let's just, for people who may not be familiar, what is the internet of things? That was actually one of the big topics last night. We, we sat in a room and all 250 people, and we debated what the Internet of Things was. What it basically boiled down to is it's not about connected devices. It's about building services. But and at the heart of the Internet of Things are still devices to some extent, right? I mean, like just to give people a, a really basic level education of what we're talking about here, we're not talking about phones necessarily or laptops. We're talking about other things. Phones can be among the things. So the idea is kind of this was these were these were utopian kind of idealists. These were the hippies of the Internet of Things mo- movement in a lot of ways. Um, they were like they want this to fade into the background. They want they want this to be like the Internet is for everybody. But for the people who really care, like what's happening on the tech side, yes, there are devices. The kind of the idea here is that we are going to have a bunch of connected sensors devices that can range from like a Wemo to a jawbone fitness thing. And all of those will be controlled. To your favorite, the fridge. You love the fridge. You I am not talking about the fridge. fridge. There is not going to be a fridge. Not for, well, there is There's a fridge. There's totally going to be a fridge. There is already a fridge. We'll get to that. Um, anyway, you connect all these and you control them from your smartphone is kind of the idea. But eventually, you may not need to have to go to your smartphone to kind of sync things that's that's the idea is that these things will start to react to you that you will they will kind of become integrated in your life kind of the way that that broadband is today. 
I mean, to me, I've always thought of this as like things that are currently not connected will become connected. I mean, is that a really basic level way to think about it? It's so basic, Tom. So basic. Well, I'm Um, pretty basic. That is the first step. So the first step is we add connectivity to things that don't already have it. But the next step is we connect those things and have them send data and then start to, and then the final thing is they will start to automatically do things for you based on the data they're sending. Yeah, I was at the meetup last night and who was it? The guy from Park was saying it's, objects that create knowledge in the cloud and then that knowledge in turn begets more objects so basically there's going to be a sensor in everything that that's the idea is well maybe not everything there's a couple things i would rather not have sensors in although yesterday freescale launched a sensor internet of things sensor that you can swallow and presumably that could they could be everything everything could have a sensor uh, okay, yes. So, but he was saying, so these devices, um, what I thought was really interesting was he was talking about how they are just avatars for other things. Your TV isn't, it's just a device to access Netflix. Your, uh, I can't even remember some of the other things he was talking about. I thought his use of, I, I thought him calling it an avatar was a little, I guess Cameron it's a little, Lee. it's a little sci-fi for me. Not not the blue aliens, um, but even the idea of like these agents or these like artificially intelligent things acting in your behalf based on data from a sensor, and they're up in the cloud kind of making decisions. That's what's happening, but you don't want to call it, I don't like calling it an avatar because it seems so human, and this isn't a fundamentally human thing. Um, It's a programmed thing. But he did bring up a really good point about kind of when you start having all of these devices and sending information kind of willy-nilly all kinds of ways, that we're going to have to change kind of how we program and how we do things. Um, so this will all happen in real time without like overwhelming a system. So you can't afford to have your coffee pot wait for instructions. Like when you walk into the room, you can't afford for your coffee pot to be like, or your phone to tell your coffee pot you're in the room. And then the coffee pot's like, oh, I should make you coffee. And then your calendar might say to the coffee pot, but wait, she has a meeting in five minutes. And the coffee pot would be like, wait, I shouldn't make her coffee. All that needs to happen kind of up in the cloud in a less kind of hierarchical manner. This seems like a huge software problem. You know, where really crappy software and really crappy interfaces could hold this back. I think we can all agree this is an interesting you know, avenue to pursue, but if people can't use this properly or intuitively, uh, is there any hope for the Internet of Things? Well, there's always hope, Tom. Tell us, Stacy. One, you're our <laughs> only hope. Yes, it's a huge software problem, and I don't think I don't think we're going to get to any examples that are going to blow your mind today, or even in the next three years. What people are doing now is building kind of they're really laying out the infrastructure for this. And right now they don't even quite know what the infrastructure is going to be. They're kind of like, well, if we do it this way, then we're going to do, we're going to need this. And if we... I liked one of the lines you had in your story that just posted about this, about how um, we were building the CompuServe of things, you know, like how about there were all these different closed networks that people are currently working on. And for this really to be a project that takes off, it needs to be one network. Yes, that's exactly one of the one of the issues. Right now, the Internet of Things is kind of developing in specific places and associated with set devices. The real promise comes in when you start taking the data 
and the data from those devices and sharing it across different platforms and also letting other things control those devices. Um, but we're probably many years away from that. So let's make it a bit more present then. If people wanted to experiment with the Internet of Things today, where are some good places for them to start? You could buy any number of connected devices, like the Philips Hue light bulb. Um, that is just a light bulb that is connected to the Internet that you can control via your smartphone. You can change the colors of the light. It's 40 to $60, depending on where you get it. Um, you can go and buy a Smart Things hub and start, like, playing with things like the Wemo, or you can have a Fitbit, which is, I should mention, is backed by True Ventures, our, our, our same backer. Um, and you can link different services to the data that your Fitbit gathers. I mean, there, there are definitely things that you can do today. There's the We Things Scale, or We Things Scale. I can never, Why Things? Yeah, it's, a, it's W-I Things. Yeah. They're like Wi-Fi Things or something like that. Wi-Fi. Why Things Scale. You can... It's more than just tweeting your weight. You're actually putting your your weight data in the cloud where other services can access it and use that data to like give you a better picture of your overall health. Or as I like to call it, putting my shame in the cloud. Yeah, that, that's that's your problem. <laughs> I thought there was another interesting thing though that came out of your of the talk was the notion that one gentleman had about how if you architect the Internet of Things with privacy and security at the heart of it, then you may actually hold yourself back from creating an you know an open network that can accommodate a lot of different types of devices i it seemed kind of counterintuitive to me but i guess you know i did say that there were hippies of the internet That's of true. things you did. um these are these are Freedom rock man turn it up turn it up the, i was thinking about that what happened to those guys there is a big <laughs> call right now for standards they're programming the internet of things <laughs> all right um there's a big call right now for standards and things like privacy and security and there is an equally big other side to that saying, God, let us be free to innovate and experiment. And I kind of tend to err on the side of free to innovate and experiment, um, which is probably like later on when, when my, my pills that I'm swallowing for some awful and embarrassing cause, you know, are, are tweeting out to the world that Stacy just took, you know. Anger Whatever. pills. What? What was? It? What is it that I would take, Chris? <laughs> I was gonna say anger pills. Uh, oh, my anger pills. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. You're not. That wouldn't be embarrassing. That would be totally, totally on target. Yeah, and everybody who knows you already knows that. Right. You're so angry. Um, but when something like that is tweeted, I'd probably regret my stance that maybe thinking about security from the get-go and trying to rein this in, it does seem like then smaller companies will lose their advantage. Because bigger companies, I think they inherently have an advantage here. Um, and I also think it will kind of stymie some of the innovation. But it will change the nature of social sharing, too, I would think. Like, you wouldn't necessarily tweet your weight or your pill content for the day or your, and, you know. Yeah, there was a great example of, of the PG&E smart sensors. Somebody went through and was like, hey, I can totally tell these people are not home because <laughs> I can read their energy usage data and they're not using any. Or there's the... The Fitbit example where it was automatically set for you're sharing all your activity with people and people were like adding how much time they were having sex. And suddenly they were like, oh, that is not what you want to see. Um, so it's it's a real issue. Um, but you maybe again, I'm an idealist. I, I don't want people thinking about like putting locks and doors in place on something that's 
kind of fun and free right now. Yeah, and it's all fun and, you know, good until somebody breaks in your house. I mean, you know, like I I just find it interesting that you would build a network without thinking about security. It seems that, like a something that will come back to bite you somewhere down the line. They are thinking about security. I mean, like in terms of the radio protocols they're using, they're using security from, you know, Wi-Fi right now. Um, I think you do have to be smart in what you choose. I mean, most of the default options now well, some of the default options aren't to automatically share. And honestly, if you're doing this sort of thing, you should really check that sort of stuff. I mean, anytime I buy a connected device, I'm like, hey, let's check on the privacy options. What, what am I sharing? But it's also not just about sharing, right? Like, it's also just understanding how you're using things and getting things just in your, making things a little easier just in your personal area network, to borrow a phrase you know, that to help you do things better or smarter or more efficiently. It's not necessarily to broadcast out to the rest of the world. That's true. And I mean, people, if they really want to, like, I guess, pick up my personal data, there are, there are ways they could do that with some of the radio technologies. I guess I'm not as worried about that. I am worried about things like my door locks being connected um, and how secure something like that is. Uh, which is why my husband won't let me install connected door locks yet on our house. Um, so, but I think if you're smart about what you're using, I, I think it'll be okay. I, I don't know, I guess. But I haven't been robbed yet. That's a problem with large-scale adoption of technology. If you assume that the user has to be smart enough to use it properly, it's not well, as, I mean, look at the thing so with the Tesla and the We're so far away from large-scale adoption, I mean, you know. though. We are so far away from large-scale adoption. I mean... But these are things you have to be thinking about. In and the they early are days thinking about extent, them, right? but they're I mean, not—they're not going to build for that use case right now because they know that that my mom may not be buying her door locks yet. It's—I I guess that's that's the and, and yes, those things will come up, and when they do, we'll have one or two highly publicized cases, and then they'll lock it down. But to design with that in mind seems. I guess it seems stifling for something that is too new and has too many fun and too many like unanticipated use cases. I mean, we can't even say how we're going to use this. It's like building a house that, building a permeable house and you don't know what a door or what a window is going to be yet and saying you want to lock that down, then you're just building like, I, that's a terrible metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> What's a door, man? Like. Is it a smart house? Is it, wait, (laughs) is there a roof deck? Like, I'm just walking through walls. Like, this is trippy. That's kind of where it is, though. Never mind. I was thinking cellular membranes. We'll we'll just go away. Uh, All right. Well, you know, this is, I I think these are all issues, and these are things you're going to be following uh, over the weeks and months. I mean, not only in coverage on GigaOM, but we'll just give it another plug. Uh, Every Thursday, your Internet of Things podcast comes out. We talk to MobiPlug. Last week, uh, at the time of this recording, tomorrow it's going to be with the Almond Router people. For yeah, it's going to be a great one because we've got a, a new router guy and we're going to be talking about like why Nest is not the best example of the Internet of Things. You and your Nest bashing. <laughs> uh, and then you're also doing a meetup in Boulder, right? So anybody listening who's in the Boulder, Colorado area. Uh, or Denver, be, it's only an hour away. Or Denver, sure. Denver, Boulder, and I'm sure there's other places near there. Um, and when is that? When is the Boulder meetup? It'll be March 13th, and it's going to be at the Foundry Group offices. Awesome. And you'll just have a lineup of people giving presentations similar to what was last night? 
We have someone from MobiPlug. We have Mike Susie from MobiPlug. We have um, Mike Rosenblatt from Adams, which is a connected toy company, and some other people. It'll be fun. All right, Stacy. Well, thanks for coming by to, to talk of such things. Uh, and I'm sure that uh, we're going to be talking to you again because this is, you know, like I said, sensors is getting cheaper and they're just getting everywhere. Thanks, Chris. This week over in Barcelona, mobile executives from around the world gathered for the Mobile World Congress. Uh, and with, here with us to talk about it is our very own Kevin Tofel, our mobile guy, gadget guy. Kevin, am I wrong in thinking that there wasn't much that came out of this Mobile World Congress? The show? I mean, was there? Should, should I have expected more? Should I have expected just this amount? I think the expectation of less is probably better because companies are having their own own events for their own devices and announcements these days, uh, which is very typical of, of Apple, who never goes to NWC. But uh, I think you're right. There was a little bit less than even even last year because there was no Microsoft, there was no Google there. And uh, a lot of devices and such have just been announced the past couple of weeks. So, yeah, I'm seeing less. I'm, le- I'm seeing less at a Mobile World Congress every year. So, it seems like that's a trade show problem in general. I totally agree. I mean, everybody wants to own the message. They don't want to be, and they want to stand out from the crowd. It's real easy to do that if you're the only one at an event, you know, touting your devices. What did you think of some? I mean, there were a few devices that were unveiled this week. However, um, were there any that like caught your mind one way or caught your eyes, you say, one way or another? Well, I think there were some that were to be expected. We saw Nokia come in with some lower-end Lumias, like their 520 and 720. I wouldn't say that's a surprise, but you know now they're trying to segment. I'm sorry, target every segment of the market for Windows Phone. Um, there are quite a few large phones, like from ZTE and LG, and and that's a definite trend. Um, I think the uh, the Asus Pad Phone and Phone Pad, which are actually two different devices, are, are kind of interesting because. Uh, the pad phone is modular, so you take your phone and you plug it into a tablet and the, the phone runs the tablet. Nobody's been able to pull that off yet. And then there's the phone pad, which is like a 7-inch tablet, almost like the Nexus 7, and yet it has a phone built into it. And I mean, you'll clunk your head and, and give yourself a, a concussion if you hold it to your head, but you could always use it as a speakerphone or with with headphones and so on. Um, and you know what? Asus is not the only one trying to do this. Um, the Samsung Galaxy Note 8 that everybody was talking about, that was unveiled at the show, and that's just like the, the smaller Note 5.5 phone, 8-inch tablet with phone features. So uh, this is something I've been talking about for a while, blending a phone and tablet for you know in the market. I don't know if it's going to take off big. I'd like to see it, but there was some of that at a Mobile World Congress, yes. Can you take an updated picture of you holding a 7-inch tablet up to your head like a phone? Oh, man. I that love that picture, one we have. It's you love so that? It, it knocks my glasses askew, as they say. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, you, and speak, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, what kind of market is there for a phone-tablet hybrid? I mean, like what... What types of people you think are are interested in those devices, and like what, you know, what are people doing right, and what are people doing wrong, in trying to make that kind of device? Well, it's a it's a a niche market at best right now. I actually fit into that market because I've tried this before with a tablet, and and made it work. And the main reason was I'd rather use a larger screen device for all of my content consumption, um, for my my web browsing, and even for my apps. But I don't want to have to carry a phone, which basically does all the same stuff as well. So for me and for the market, I think it's a market for people who don't want to carry two devices and don't mind carrying a larger than normal phone in a sense. Um, seven, eight inches may be too big for a lot of people. I don't know, but I think, you know, it's really not too bad. I, I don't know about you guys. I used to carry a daytime re- 
paper planner 10 years back. It was just as big as this and much thicker. I took that everywhere. You know, I, I can do the same with a tablet. So I think it's niche market now, but people may be thinking about it once they get the, when it, once they get the feel of it. It's something you have to experience, in my opinion. And HP had some news coming out of the show, right, that you're really excited about. I am so not excited about it. I can't believe they did this. Uh, HP came out with their Slate 7, which is a Me Too product, in my my opinion. It's it's just another Android tablet. There's nothing fancy about it. It's going to start at $169. The resolution of the display is not even HD. Uh, the camera's 3 megapixels on the rear. It's just... I don't understand. It's got Beats Audio, if you care about that. I, I don't understand this. Uh, HP has just been... I don't know, all over the map for the past several years between their Palm acquisition, the floundering of the WebOS uh, platform, the touchpad that wasn't. Uh, we're in the tablet game, we're out of the tablet game, now they're back in apparently. I this, just, it's so hmm. bizarre to me how they were, other than Apple, arguably the best legacy PC maker positioned to go after the post-PC era, and they like entirely blew the whole thing. I, and it I, cost them so much. I know it's it's kind of mind-boggling how this happened, and I'm sure, I'm sure there are some good stories to come out about like how exactly it went down, and you know, obviously some of the turmoil they've had in the CEO chair probably didn't help. Mm-hmm. But it's really it's really kind of amazing. I mean, you look at a company like Dell, who has never figured this out, like never even really tried hard to figure it out, and you know, you look at where they are now, and you look at some of the other companies, Lenovo and the Gateways and the Acers and and all of that, and. You know, they've had some successes here and there, but HP had a differentiated product that they just couldn't or wouldn't make happen. And so now they've got a Me Too Android slate. Like, I, it's just mind-boggling. Yeah. I think they're lucky, based on some of the points you just made, that they have such a large, well-known brand and, and have so much in terms of sales and pull around the globe right now. Because any other company that, that were to have purchased Palm for $1.2 billion and thrown it all down the toilet probably wouldn't exist today other than being big enough like HP. That's the sole reason I think they, they escaped from that mistake. So there wasn't much you know, news in, in terms of like gadgets or phones and stuff, it sounds like, coming out of Mobile World Congress, but were there any big trends that we see coming? Well, so much of, so much of that show is not just devoted to devices, but also to network infrastructure. And I know that um, our guys on the, on the uh, show floor, Kevin Fitchard and, and David Meyer, um, looked into hearing about 4G networks, 5G networks coming up, uh, new ways to offload uh, car- uh, cellular traffic onto Wi-Fi networks. So there's so much of that. That trend, though, has really been a trend for the past couple years as mobile grows. So I wouldn't call it a new trend. It's just all of these guys you know, trying to jockey for position with their new chips and, and wireless technologies. It's interesting how the networks are starting to, you know, People are starting to pay attention, I think, to the sophistication of the networks as much as the devices. Not and not people in the industry, obviously, who have always realized this. But mm-hmm. I think you know, at some point, you'll start to you know, if we have more, if we have easier ways to switch between carriers, you know, you'll start paying a little bit more attention, maybe, to the technology that your carrier is using, or the advances that they're making, or the, the reliability that they're promising. And so, if you can develop some sort of breakthrough networking technology that allows you to uh, serve customers in a in a much better way than the competition. Then you know that's it's just as important as whether or not you've got a four inch phone or a five inch phone running Android or or Windows Phone or iOS or whatever. Absolutely, there right now at least in the U.S. there really isn't any true competition. So it's not like we're 
we're looking at the different network technologies and, and solutions from the different carriers. It's pretty much who can get me online, where I need to be online, and, and lets me do so in a fast way that's not too expensive. That's really about it. But you're absolutely right. These things are getting more sophisticated as we do everything, uh, either through a mobile connection or a wired connection. And it's definitely something that here in the U.S. I hope we do see more competition come from. Teeing off on that a little bit, there was a, a lot of stuff written this week about uh, Apple's decision to not put uh, cellular uh, radio in, the, in their MacBooks. Uh, have you been following that at all, Kevin? Or I think it was Marco Arment who wrote about that. Yeah, I, I, I did read Marco's post on it. And, and to be honest, I mean, as I said on our last podcast to you, Chris, I'm in the midst of actually deciding between buying a Chromebook Pixel, which has LTE built in, versus a MacBook Pro with Retina, which doesn't have LTE built in. Um, I'm a little surprised that Apple hasn't done it to this point, but I think it's mainly because they want to guarantee battery life. And it's one of the easiest ways to do that. I, I see a definite difference in battery life on devices that have an LTE radio versus, you know, not having one. So um, I don't think Apple's going to do that until they've totally licked the battery challenges there. So that may not happen for, for some time, in my opinion. The PC industry tried this like five years mm -hmm. ago. You know, they, they, they sold, it was 3G, you know, it wasn't 4G, but still they sold integrated, uh, you know, cellular modems in laptops. And well, I shouldn't say they sold them because they sold like none of them. They, they produced <laughs> laptops with these chips. And, you know, it seems like a really great idea, right? Like, you know, ubiquitous data connection wherever I am without having to, you know, fight for a table at Starbucks or something like that. Mm -hmm. But in practice, it's a lot more difficult. You're right to raise the battery life stuff, definitely. But like, you know, just the way that we, in the U.S. anyway, do data plans with carriers, you know, exclusive contracts and two-year contracts. And, you know, do I add my laptop in as an extra device with my phone plan or do I get a separate plan for that? Or, you know, like the carrier is going to demand a cut of that at some point along the way in the business relationships between Apple uh, and those carriers. Um, you know, I mean, they're obviously pretty good for the iPhone, but, you know, would the carriers want to treat the MacBook the same way? It's, you know, it's just a complicated it's a more mm -hmm. complicated problem than I think people really understand. I, I totally agree, I, although I do think it's gotten less complicated now with our mobile share plans that you see out of AT&T and Verizon in particular. That's a good point. Yeah, because you can just add, you know, as needed for 10 bucks on a tablet or whatever on a laptop. I don't recall the cost. And I have to say, with the Pixel, what makes it appealing to me is two things. One, I actually get or would get... 100 megabytes of free data over 4G every single month for the next two years. And while that's not a lot, it actually at least gets you online when you need to be in a pinch. And secondly, it's Verizon's LTE that's built into there. That's the service. And I have an AT&T iPhone with, that I can use as a hotspot. So for me, I could actually have the you know, two different backup plans if I couldn't find Wi-Fi on the Pixel. So I, I'm actually considering it for those reasons. All right. Well, Kevin, what's the next? What's the next thing on the horizon for the mobile world? What What are your eyes focused on next? Hmm. Besides my purchase decision on a on my next laptop, um, that's a toughie. That's a Samsung's toughie because... got the event coming up on the fourteenth. That'll be oh, interesting. that's right. Yes. In fact, I will be there. Uh, they're holding it in New York City. I will be there. It's an evening event and. Outside of the venue, people can actually go to Times Square and, I guess, listen in or look in on it because they're having a, a Times Square party at the same time. So uh, I won't be at that. I'll be at the event. But if you're in town, 
Go over to Times Square on the 14th. When you're stumbling out of Guy Fieri's restaurant, nah. uh, head on over <laughs> to the Samsung uh, event. All I right. don't know. I hear the New York Times didn't care for his uh, place. Yeah. <laughs> Just saying. They went on a bad day. I yeah. yeah. I mean, really, if you want extreme chunky chili fries. And who doesn't? You know. Then you got to make sure you, you got to make sure you're having the right chef working that day. Otherwise, they could just fall apart. It's a very delicate, a very mm-hmm. delicate dish. It's as complex as 4G in a laptop. It is. And on that note, Kevin, thank you so much. <laughs> Kevin is not only our mobile writer, but he's the host of the Mobile Call-In Show, where he answers your questions about mobile technology and gadgets. So be sure to check that out in our podcast feed. Thanks so much, Kevin. Thank you.